0: Hey, welcome to Marginally, a podcast about writing, work, and friendship. I'm Olivia, a corporate fraud investigator living in London with my husband and two cats. I'm currently working on a novel and daydreaming about lots of other
1: projects. And I'm Megan, a librarian and freelance indexer writing about complex women's friendships for both young adult and adult audiences.
0: Today's guest is Jane Campbell, the author of the short story collection Cat Brushing, which is named after a fantastic short story that was published in the London Review of Books. It's linked in our show notes. Jane became a published writer relatively later in life, so I'm going to talk you through the parts of her bio that come up in the interview now. She was born near Liverpool in the UK during World War II. Her father was a doctor in the war with his regiment and had been taken prisoner and was in a POW camp for a lot of her early years. By the time he came back, she was three and a half years old. She later moved to Zambia, called Northern Rhodesia at the time, studied in South Africa, and then at Oxford, where she studied English. She married a lawyer and moved to Bermuda in 1968, divorcing 12 years later. And when she returned to Oxford, she studied social science, moved into mental health work, and trained as a group analyst in London, which became her profession. As we discuss in the interview, she has always written. She refers to herself as an involuntary writer but she was not focused on publication. We found her path to publication interesting and refreshing. At age 77, her first short story was published in the LRB, and she was introduced to an agent. She now has a two-book contract, and she's working on the second book, a novel that is scheduled to come out in spring 2024. We really love talking to her in this wide-ranging interview in which we touch on everything from portrayals of the elderly in the media during the pandemic to existential angst. By the end, she's even interviewing us. We hope you enjoy it as much as we did. So thank you so much for coming on our podcast. We're really excited to talk to you. And yeah, it's just a quick introduction. I really, I loved um, your book, Cat Brushing. I just sort of devoured it. I loved all the stories. I thought it was a really interesting and new um, perspective, but also reading about your biography was really interesting as well. And sort of the, the path that you've taken to putting this book out Something that we usually ask all of our guests really is to just talk a little bit. We we're very interested in people being able to have a full life and kind of breaking down this myth of having to only focus, you know, the, the sort of art monster focus on only writing and you give everything else up for writing. So if you could just tell us a little bit about other aspects of your life, like caring and professions and things like that, just sort of all the different spheres that you've
2: participated in in your life. Well, I mean, I've had a long life, I'm 81, and so in the course of that life, I've done a lot of different things. If I were to take you through all of them, we'd be probably here for the whole hour. But um, I suppose what I've done is I've written all my life. I, at university in Oxford, read English, which um, has always been my passion, you know, English literature stories about people. Then I got married and I had four children and I looked after them full time. And I loved doing that. And then I returned to Oxford from Bermuda and I did a second degree and got into mental health work because I realized that, and I mean this in the most sincere, this is not a sort of dismissive kind of statement, but it allows you to say to somebody who walks into the room, tell me about yourself. Because that's why people come to see mental health professionals to relieve themselves of Anxieties and so on. And people talk, and it is the most, and and I did loads of training. I trained then for about seven years. So I think I was a responsible and scrupulous practitioner. But you do get an extraordinary insight into human beings. And the writer in me found this absolutely intriguing. And I did that for about 35 years. And then when I got this short story accepted, the initial one, that went off to the London Review of Books, people say that they can see in the stories, and I really hope so, that these are old women whose, even if their backstory is not on the page, I hope it's apparent because in my head, these are women who I met as children and who have developed over the years into the old women they have become. Does that answer you at all?
0: Yeah, it absolutely does. So when you say that you met them as children, do you mean you sort of you understand their whole life, their whole life history? Yeah, Yeah. I
2: I might only be describing a conversation on a train or, you know, thoughts about someone on the beach or something. But in my head, these are people that I've known all their lives. It sounds a bit extreme to put it like that. But I, I and maybe everyone's like this. You know, how do I know? haven't asked anyone else, but um, I do get the sense of the whole person and everyone I meet was once a child. And I assume a la Freud or Melanie Klein or someone, you know, I assume that those early years shape you.
0: I think that was one of the things in preparation for this. I sort of was rereading a couple of stories and actually noticed that there, there seemed to be a lot of things in the stories that are kind of obliquely referenced, just random sentences that sort of say, well, this, when this happened, and it would be something that could be like a major or catastrophic event. You don't unpack it at all. It's just that thing happened clearly in their backstory. And you're not like, it sounds like a very big deal, but that's not what the story is about. It's really interesting how many layers there really are in those stories. So I think that that does come through really on the page when you're writing that.
2: That's amazing, Olivia, because I mean, what you're a reader to die for, obviously, because um, I, I, I'm really glad to hear that. I didn't know because they're so in my head. I can't get outside them to read them properly.
0: So can you, I guess, I mean, we could go a lot of different directions from that. But one question, I guess, if you could maybe talk a little bit more about, I mean, it's interesting because in my uh, master's, I'm doing a master's in writing at the moment, several oh, people really? Really? in the oh. course, yeah it's uh, wonderful. yeah yeah and it's part time and so everybody else has had jobs and you know it's there it's a little bit older crowd than maybe some of the other people but and a couple of the people in the course are also sort of therapists as well and it's really interesting because obviously they have so many stories and also this understanding of how human characters work um so maybe could you talk a little bit more about how that work has informed your your writing
2: well, now that is, I have to sort of switch hats a bit. Actually, no, I suppose it's one hat. Um, well, I assume, I mean, I don't know, I don't want to sort of just come out with trite phrases, but I do assume that a child's early years, let's say up to five, they will have relationships with one or both parents. And the nature of those relationships gives the child a sense of security or not security and they will develop attachment styles, which are, and you can give them different names like anxious attachment, insecure attachment, and so on, robust attachment. But thereafter, this person will take into their adult lives patterns of responding to other people, patterns of relationship searching. They will look for, they will almost certainly look for repetitions of their childhood experiences, even if those experiences were traumatic, and that's very important. And I mean, I, I don't know if you want me to mention specific stories, but I, I think that I just sort of, for me, it's axiomatic. And I assume that it is for a lot of people, because we're all so psychologically educated these days, where everyone knows this, everyone knows that, you know, it's important how you grow up. One thing I do very clearly want to say though, what I don't believe is predictive psychopathology, I don't think it's ever right or even accurate to say, this child has had this kind of trauma happen to it. Therefore, it is going to grow up and be a maladjusted adult. I think that's absolute rubbish. That's a polite word for it. Um, and it should never, ever be used that way. It's the, the, the psychoanalytic theory just gives us a way of understanding what probably happened and possibly... How to avoid it happening again in the future.
1: I think it's interesting when you were just talking about your switching hats. And I think when you're describing your your bio your biography and we talk, you know, on the surface it looks like it's very sequential, right? You went to university, then you had a period of time as where, you know, you were raising your children, then you had a period of time when you were a, you know, a working in mental health. And now you have a period of time where you're a writer, but it's really clear that while progression may look sequential, it's not sequential at no, all. No, um, very true. It's
2: incremental.
1: Yes. Yeah. But I would just wondered if you maybe had some things to share about that. I think um, when Olivia is speaking about her classmates and, you know, just our experience with having this podcast and our own personal approach there there's very definitely this this feeling that you want to either balance all of your roles all at once all of the time or you know do one thing on the side but it's equally important there's there's this idea that we're trying to have this kind of life path where everything's concurrent all the time all the way through rather than accepting like the sequentiality of Life at times and different things coming in phases. But I mean, the reality is that neither one of those absolutes is quite accurate. But I just wondered if you could speak a little bit to your experience with those things.
2: I think you're absolutely right that it's not neatly sequential, it is actually well, incremental. You add little bits as you go along. I would, however, say I think I've been fortunate in that when I was at home with the kids. I didn't have to work. Now, you know, young women go into a state of shock when I say that. But I didn't want to shock. I didn't want to work when I was a young mother. I was so grateful I was able to stay with the children and just be, a, you know, taken to school, pick them up, bring them back, do all the stuff. So, uh, so that was, you know, so I only had to do one thing at a time. I wasn't a working young mother. By the time I moved back to Oxford and I'd started the training as a group analyst of my actual professional description is as a group analyst. My children were much older, or at least the older three, I did have one younger one. And um, it it was much more straightforward in my head as to where I was able to put the bulk of my focus, although you're quite true, there there were conflicts. And then I suppose I just did, I just focused on that I never focused on trying to be a writer. I never went off to writers' retreats or gave time to writing. I always just wrote because it was compulsive activity for me in the spaces of my life. And as I've said, now and again, I developed a hobby of sending it off to, sending pieces I'd written off to publications or to agents or to, you know, just looking to see if they could be published in a rather random an absent-minded sort of way I'd sometimes forget where I'd send them and and so the hobby was sending them off the preoccupation was writing because it was compulsive and then I had the job and the job was what I did every day actually I don't think I've answered you regarding the sequentiality (laughs) well
1: I don't know if there is an answer and I think that's part of the answer but there's just our own individual
0: experiences right Sure. One of the things that we always just struggle against, um, if you go, probably it's better for everyone if they don't go look for this, but uh, (laughs) there's a lot of people who sort of say you have to write every day or you have to wake up at five in the morning and write every morning before you go to your job or whatever. You know, if you're not doing that, then you're doing something wrong. Our informal motto of this podcast is you're not doing it wrong, like whatever works for you. But I'm curious about, I guess. Like building on that, if you could maybe share a little bit more about your early writing. You said it's compulsive since you were eight years old, but like, yeah. what does it look yeah. like? I mean, were you writing poems or always stories? Did you oh, always have these right. characters? I've, I've written yeah. my poems. <laughs> yes,
2: of course I've done poems. Doesn't everyone when they're young? Mm-hmm. I am, um, well, you know, the old tradition of a novel in the bottom drawer. I mean, I'm assuming that's true for most people. It was true for me. And I mean i just always i was brought up in the middle of Africa, but it was a very bookish household very you know very bookish I was read poetry as a child. my mother taught me to read in England during the war uh yeah i had a i had one of those traditional bookish literary upbringings, and then I went off to boarding school and so on and it just carried on that books were books were the thing you know you had to have a book around you had to have lots of books you books were wonderful books were the Were the water of life. And so it was probably inevitable. I started writing my own little stories, novellas, poems, and then I wrote some novels and they got a certain amount of attention. Pat Kavanagh, bless her, really loved a story I wrote about my childhood in Africa. But she'd grown up in Africa, so I think she was sort of biased. And uh, she asked me to write another book and so on. And then unfortunately, she died young. Well, quite young. But but I never really followed anything up with any sort of passion, uh, which does surprise me. The the point is, you must realize I've only been a writer for the last five years. I mean, a successful writer, a published writer. And that happened in 1977. So it's very, very, very recent. I've always written, but I was never published.
0: Did did you So you shared some of your earlier writing with other people? Um, yeah.
2: I, I used to send it off to an agent or, and then I met a lovely guy in Oxford called James McClure, who was from South Africa, because, you know, there's the African thing I'm drawn to people who spend time in Africa. And he, um, he, his agent was Pat Kavanaugh, and he sent, he sent something I'd written to her and she loved it. And, you know, I have I've never found the letter. I should have framed it. So, you know, and I thought, oh, that's wonderful. You know, she loves it. But I didn't, I didn't, that's, I didn't sort of carry through very much. And I really don't know why. I haven't a clue. It looks perverse.
0: But I, I mean, I really am enjoying it, is why I'm asking the follow up questions, because I think they're, again, in the sort of mainstream current contemporary culture, there's like you work in, at five in the morning and you do it every day and then you get discovered. And there's like a kind of similar to everything else, linear progression that you're supposed to do. And of course, most people's writing lives are not like that, right? You maybe take years out to do something else or, you know, you work on lots of different things at the same time and nothing works out. Or I mean, there's lots of different things or like you, you show them to people and then maybe don't follow them up. And then eventually you do follow them up. And I think it's much more real, but people can get really self-critical, I think when they are thinking well i should be doing this and that you know
2: yes well somebody on another podcast did say to me that older writers you know they if they reach 60 say and they're not published they wonder if they ought to give up and because they feel they need permission to go on trying and i said one of the good things about getting old is you really don't ask permission and i think i i probably the way i was brought up and Probably my personality. I don't think I've ever felt I needed permission to do anything ever. And I just, I would just send things off and, and so on. So I think you're right. I think everyone should have permission to do exactly what they want in terms of their writing lives. And I certainly would never get up at five o'clock in the morning
1: to write.
0: <laughs> That's true. I mean, don't either. worry. We're not, we're not advocating this.
1: <laughs> well, and I think the theme of, not seeking permission to do, to live your life and to do what you want. And I think that fits very neatly with, um, I mean, not neatly necessarily because it's all life is just very messy, but it fits right alongside your discussion about, you know, the invisibility, um, that comes with age and women being seen as not, I mean, frankly, Women of any age being seen as not fully human, Um, but how it gets, how it changes with age, which parts of you get seen and which parts of you don't, and which roles you're sort of expected to slot into. So I didn't know if that was something that you did want to go into or not with your writing, but you said something very interesting when we were emailing about. How your background and mentioning uh, your childhood in Africa being very, and, and your experience during the war being very matriarchal, and how that has sort of influenced you, influenced your stories, but also, I don't know, maybe just obviously your experience, right? Childhood does have an impact on your adulthood. So, yes.
2: Well, during the war, so my father went off, my father was a doctor, and he was sent to North Africa with a tank regiment for after he'd signed up. And my mother and he had six weeks together, and then he went off. And he came back out of a POW camp when I was nearly four. So I grew up with a single mother in a household dominated by her grandmother. Her mother had already died. So, yes, it was a very female-centred – There was all the authority in the house was with the women. And um, I think it must have influenced me because – Although we longed for my father to come back, well, I I, mean, I didn't know him, but I was told about him. I'm sure my mother most of the time wanted him back. He was posted missing, believed dead. So I think that must have been hard. And and when he came back, he was very, you know, he loved us and I loved him. And, and he took us off the middle of Africa. But I think it did influence my sense that, you know, women are enough. You don't have to have a guy around. They're they're sort of probably very loved and kind of missed, but you really don't have to have one. But the the first bit of your question also interested me, and I think it was about. Can you remember what it was about, Megan?
1: Permission and how, that's right. Permission yes. and invisibility, I think.
2: Permission and invisibility. I'm sure you know that um, there was this paper written. Uh, you know, are are women human? in the 1930s. Um, And I agree with you that I think women are looked on differently and usually sort of pejoratively, but that's that's nothing new. Everybody knows that. Why does it make me angry? Um, I think somebody asked me why I wrote these stories, and I said I was angry. The, The specifics of it are during the lockdown, the British press at least, or at least the bit I read, um, was dominated by the the idea of all these lonely old people who were should be in care homes or weren't in care homes or were in care homes and the loneliness and the vulnerability and the weakness and they had a, a rather nice standard photograph they kept trotting out, which was a photograph of a white haired woman with a proper book a hard hardcover book on her knee with a you know little glowing fire in the hearth. I thought she looked perfectly happy. And they kept talking about the loneliness of the old. Now, I have a theory. People in my generation are far better with loneliness because we grew up during the war when there was not. I mean, this, is, this makes me sound so old and crabby, but we weren't constantly entertained. We had to entertain ourselves. And most old people I know are pretty good at just sort of looking out of the window and thinking what a beautiful day or something. They don't need the constant sounds and sights of artificial um, information-giving machines like televisions and radios and so on. Um, and I just felt irritated by this. Nobody said, why don't we ask them how they manage or aren't they wise? Or I wonder if they know something we don't because they've lived so long. Nobody, <laughs> that was never there.
0: Yeah, I think uh, that's really like it's hard sometimes to even put your finger on what is resonating, but in your stories, yeah, you have these very full characters. And I think it's very rare that we get full characters of older people. They're yeah. usually a kind of like a sideshow in a funny movie, like a family, you know, you're sort of a, a, somebody who comes in and says something wise at a critical moment, right? You're a kind of catalyst for a change or... You know, something like that, as opposed to Possibly. being a person yeah. who's lived an entire life and has yes. all of these yes. things. Yes, yes,
2: yeah, and, uh, and and can provide resources and are yeah. resourceful. You know, mm. well, and if you live this it, long, you must have some
0: survival skills. You know, but also, I think even I mean, like I th- I agree that it would have. There's a lot of different ways that I think probably the pandemic reporting could have been more human, and and I wonder actually about. Maybe as a somebody with a um, kind of therapeutic background, I mean, I wonder if a lot of the journalists who are writing about all of this loneliness—I mean, there's actually urban loneliness—that is probably one of the most significant things, right? And they're they're probably lonelier than some of the people that they're sort of talking about being lonely, right? They're sort of projecting. Interesting
2: idea. Do you want to take it further?
0: Well, I no, I'm just very, I, you know, Olivia Lang wrote this book about, I don't remember, um, she has a book about loneliness in cities. And I think it's something that gets increasingly discussed. But actually, you know, I think, A, so you feel lonely or you're worried about being lonely in a city and you're sort of isolated in your little apartment and, you know, everything. Um, and so you look at and you try to find somebody else who's lonely so you can talk about it. Otherwise, how do you mention that you're lonely? You can't say what your personal need might be. And I think, I i mean, I definitely, it's actually interesting thinking about it because during, at the beginning of the pandemic, I've got a couple of neighbors. One of them is older and I immediately thought of, it's like, I feel a little bit indicted here, but anyway, um, I thought of her and sort of said, okay, well, we should do something together so that, so that, you know, she doesn't feel lonely, but obviously, like mostly I was scared of being lonely, I think. And I enjoyed these online Scrabble sessions probably more than anyone else. Definitely instigated them more, I think. And, you know, I think there was a fear of loneliness that made people reach out to people they're perceiving as being lonely. But it's really about their own fear.
2: Well, I think I, I agree with every word. I think that's very astute. So society projects onto the elderly their own sense of vulnerability and loneliness i think that could be that could be a very very good point somebody ought to write about it
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay well we'll take that away honestly i think i think it's interesting yeah yeah i hadn't thought about it like that because none of your characters are have any of those sort of tropes i think and that is what i think is so like fresh and amazing about your writing um is that it's quite specific to the age that the, your characters are, but it's not but they're very universal as well.
2: I hope so. I mean, uh, not all the old women even have names, and that was quite deliberate because I wanted them to be kind of universal old women, you know, that were not that specific, but which just had yeah, that that, that is true. There is actually a bit of writing which is going to be in the paperback. There there are precedents. And I don't know if you want me to talk about those. I was was influenced and very impressed by the film Nomadland, which came out, you know, which shows a resourceful old woman. There are precedents for this um, writing about old women, but not a lot, not a lot, not just showing an old woman her story. You know, as you say, they're usually somebody's grandmother or you know, somebody's nanny or.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask you about any influences that you had or anybody that you were sort of like when you oh, imagine your audience, maybe as well.
2: I, I didn't imagine an audience and that's interesting. I don't know. So I, this was a two book contract that my agent got me. And and so I'm working at the moment on a novel and um, it's a complex thing. And I don't know if anyone's ever going to read it, frankly, don't tell my publishers that, but Um, The thing is, I don't write for a readership. I write for myself, and I don't know if that's a good idea. So I've written exactly the kind of novel that I would love to read, but I realise I may be a minority of one, so it's, you know, it's tricky. So did you ask me about my readership? Yes, I, I don't really have an idea of readership. I can't imagine why young people would want to read my stories, but they should. Because if they're young women and they're fortunate, one day they will be old women.
1: No, I think you're right. Like, I th- there's definitely an interest um, as a younger, you know, person. Woman? Yes. In my, well, I mean, so in my early 40s. And, and it's definitely something that I've noticed. The invisibility is something that is starting to happen. And it's, it's noticeable. Um, but I find I'm very, very interested in what older women have to say and discussing, you know, what things are going to be like. And I don't know, part of that is just my personality. I like to know, I like to know in advance, be as prepared as possible. And, you know, of course, everything I prepare for never comes out that way. So it's always a surprise. But I was really struck with what you said, speaking about the news coverage and how, you know, nobody asked no, no, nobody asked older people how they felt. And I feel like your stories are kind of a way of you saying, you know, again, back to the permission thing, nobody asked me, but I'm going to tell you anyway. And I really hope you listen.
2: I really like that, Megan, actually. That's, that's good. Nobody asked me, this is what I'm thinking about as an old woman. And of course, a lot of them are outrageous. One point I must make is Families, the families of these old women don't get a very good press. Um, I do personally have a lovely family of four children, all here in Bermuda, which is why I visit Bermuda. And they're, they're really good to me. So I'm a little surprised that these families, the families of the old women, you know, they're always looked on as either not having a clue or being very intrusive or just doing the wrong thing or just simply not understanding. So, and I do think actually that that is the reality because although I have four very devoted children, I can't really, I don't know, you ought to put this, but anyway, um, I can't really tell them, I can't really tell them what it's like being me because you can't tell your children that. You you have to protect them.
0: I hate asking this question actually, but um, do they read your work? I'm just curious. Yes, yes,
2: they do. And that's another thing. That's another thing. I mean, these stories are, When I wrote them, I didn't think of them as being at all, you know, at all outrageous. I just thought, well, this is what people are like. And of course, there's lots of sexual stuff in that, because if you've worked in the psychoanalytic field for 35 years, you've talked an awful lot about people's sex lives. It's basic. And it never really, so. talking about not writing for a readership, I also didn't think not to put in things that might upset people who knew me. Um, I just wrote what came into my head. And they've all been amazingly wonderful when after all, they might've been a bit shocked.
0: Yeah. I really, I mean, it's something that comes up sometimes in any kind of uh, writer interview where you sort of, especially when people are writing something that's really real or very raw, you wonder how people that know them in real life react to that sort of writing. And at the same time, it's also none of our business, right? I mean, your writing is about the work, right? And but it is really interesting and I think that you know the stories are so I I was curious if you thought about what it was like for people to read them but you didn't think about your audience and and,
2: yeah I love that. Shows how self-centered I am I suppose it
0: didn't occur to me
2: I just thought I'll write the best story I can I suppose I did want to do that.
0: Well I think it works definitely Um, and it makes everything, I mean, I definitely, I mean, it's my own thing. I definitely think about what's going to happen if this comes out or, you know, whatever. And so it it can be paralyzing. I think it's something that it's great yeah, that you're not thinking I, about that.
2: Well, maybe this is about being old and not asking permission, but I suspect it's also a, a degree of short-sightedness in me. I didn't, Well, and and finally, you must realize it's my hobby sending things off. I don't think I really believed they'd be published. So I had this complete freedom.
0: So can you tell us a little bit more about your publishing kind of path? Um so how it's very brief. Okay, yes.
2: Well, I wrote a short story. Uh okay, so I was in Bermuda on holiday, staying with my um eldest son and his wife. And and it is true that they had a cat called Lucy, I don't put the name in, who loved being brushed. And my f- son was at work and my daughter-in-law was off the island, I think. And um, I was there in that very nice kitchen. Um, And I thought, and I decided to write a short story. I think I decided I'd been reading about a short story competition. Um, And I thought, oh, this is the hobby. Oh, I'll have a go at that. So um, I wrote the short story and it was quite, so the setting is absolutely my son's house. But the old woman is obviously an extrapolation of myself. I mean, I am clearly not housebound, I'm not yet incontinent. Um, I, I can't remember her other feet. Oh, she's an obsessive knitter. I don't knit ever, and and so on. But gradually, these characteristics accumulated around her as she felt partnered with the cat in life, because the cat is also old. She has bad teeth. She has, you know, her fur is not as fresh as it was. And gradually this evolved into this erotic idea of stroking the cat and imagining that she's in bed. And I gave her strings of lovers. And I have to say to everyone, I do make stories up. I do invent things. It really is not my past. But they just kind of tumbled into my mind. There's an outrageous quote in me, absolutely outrageous I can't believe I wrote it, except I never thought anyone would read it. Um, which I, I, you know, I can't. It's the one about I don't know if I would say it, sucking pussy. You know that one? Yeah. Well, that I have an amazing head for quotes. It was very helpful when I was doing my English degree, and I read that quote in a magazine years and years ago. It was about the mafia, and somebody was writing about them and saying that they met this mafia person. So in some ways, they were really tough and, you know, really tough hoods. But that the, they'd say things like this, which showed how incredibly sort of primitive. And it was actually a quote, but it stayed in my head. And so I thought, that's a good quote. So it came out in my story. And, then, and there it was. And I wrote it for about four days. And there it was. And I thought, actually, this is quite good. It's quite good. And I obsessively read the London Review of Books. I think it's the best magazine in the world, and um, I thought, "What the hell? I'll send it to them." And that was it.
0: Had you ever sent anything to them before? Yeah.
2: No. Okay. No, no. I mean, they're very, uh, very high level. So. Yes.
0: <laughs> yeah, but you know, you never know.
2: Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, they don't also. They don't publish fiction. I sometimes worry that loads of people have sent them stories. Um, they don't publish fiction. But obviously they they can do what they want, so they decided to publish it. I think at first they thought it was a diary piece. They thought it was true. And that really pleased me because it meant it was pretty convincing.
1: It is conv- I mean, it's a wonderful yeah. piece. Um, I just keep thinking about the kind of Jungian idea of in your dreams, every single person in your dream is actually a piece of you and how are that applies. Are you a Jungian? No, I wouldn't. I've read some, but I wouldn't, you know, uh, ascribe, you know, any particular thing to myself. You know, I've read. That's
2: usually What they say: everyone in a dream is yourself.
1: Yeah, and so, and just thinking about all these old women and myself. No, no, no. I'm, I'm just thinking. Like, I don't know if that's if I necessarily agree with that, but it's an interesting way of looking at it. And then when it comes down to you know fiction, you can kind of apply it even further out. But at the same time. I think it's interesting, I don't really know where I'm going with this as I've done the whole hour we've been speaking, (laughs) but it is interesting to think about one, being perceived that way and being able to, the way you have said, you just don't think about how you're going to be perceived or how your stories are going to be perceived.
2: Or if they'd really be published, just remember that, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I think I just really admire that sort of approach to your writing as a hobby you know it's still ambitious and you still want to write the best story that you can but the idea that it doesn't have to be for anybody but yourself but if it is that's great too I I don't know I just think it's just very different from the dominant writing culture as we've kind of discussed but to get back to the the idea of every character you know is obviously not yourself but then it's more of a comment than a question Okay.
2: um, okay. Well, I mean, that's interesting. I'm sure the cat. Well, I feel the cat was a part of the old woman who, by the way, is also nameless. And she's projecting a lot of her feelings into the cat because, of course, the cat cat can't really tell her how it feels. She sees the cat as vulnerable uh, because she actually thinks she's vulnerable, too, because of this new young wife. And I I don't want to say my daughter-in-law is not like that. So, yes. Obviously, I did write these stories, so one has to say that the material is in my head. What I usually fall back on is saying I've listened to an awful lot of stories in 30 years and uh, so on and so forth. But yes, I suppose also many of the women embody or enact a defiance that I think in my own life I haven't um, exercised because I haven't wanted to upset my. So in my life, I haven't wanted to upset my. Family, my parents first, and then children. This is how it goes in your life. Your children become your parents in the end. But I, I gave them complete freedom, my old women, to be to be as outrageous or to be as um, to be as free as I think one might want to be sometimes, if you have no responsibilities to other people. Yeah, that's interesting. I think they embody some of my defiance and my bids for freedom.
0: I think that's right. Definitely in cat brushing. It's also a kind of internal freedom that is almost irrepressible. Like her internal narrative is so much about freedom and about appreciating freedom and obviously also about loss and everything that she's lost. But I just love this line about her body and mind and about how she used or ill used them. Um, And then it sort of concludes, I think the paragraph saying, but at least, thank God, they've been used and I did not waste them. And I think that sort of philosophy is, I mean, the whole character and the whole story really embodies that entire line and that idea. Well,
2: yes, I mean, I i would like, yes, I, I think a wasted life is a, a sad thing and it can happen often. And I have met women whose lives I think could have been put in that category. They felt mm-hmm. wasted. And not in the sense, not wasted, wasted, but not used, not used properly, that their talents. I'll just very quickly share with you that Maslow was a, um, in the 1960s, I think, he was an American um, therapist. And he, I think, coined the term existential angst. And existential angst, he said, was when you have talents that are not exercised. I've used it quite a lot in my work. And I think it's a, I'm not saying, you know, it's just, it's a valid concept it helps people work out sometimes why they were feeling discontented or depressed or just restless or just generally unhappy. And I I do believe that if you have talents that are not used and not exercised, you will feel, you, you won't feel good. You're just going to feel bad. But you know, and so I believe in that. And I think that my old women, the old women, I tried to ensure that they they made a bid for this. Of course, it was a tragic thing. In 183 minutes, this lovely old woman finally sort of you know, has the courage, really, to reach for a relationship that looks promising, and of course, it doesn't doesn't work out. But she had the courage to do it, and I think this is what I admire most in life: is when people reach for something, even if they don't succeed. It's the um, it's the trying to live. And not just
0: relinquishing life um yeah no I think I think that's right and I think that is just something that I think is very relatable to people in any period of their life where okay. especially because you can overthink right you think about should I make the leap when well, Megan and I are talking about this all the time anyway but should I do this thing or should I not do the thing that the key thing is not really whether you do it or not but really just like some action, right? Like actually living your life rather than trying to calculate how it's all gonna go. Right. Because
2: you you never know. There's always the unexpected Mm
0: -hmm. as
2: well. So are you both writers as well as podcasters? Yes.
0: (laughs) We're writers first. It was one of the roles of starting the podcast was that the writing the podcast should sort of supplement our writing and encourage our writing, but not take up our writing time so that's been,
2: admirable i think it's yeah. really admirable. and so have you also are there books out there by you guys not in, yet
0: in
1: drawers <laughs> yes drawers <laughs> yeah. still, still in drawers i mean we've done the sending out and the you know working on new things so okay
2: um, so that's yeah. yeah we're just and do, do you write novels poems
1: essays? novels stories essays you're very like so, me yes um, yes just <laughs> and i i would say a lot of it is you know like most probably a lot of writers and um but like what you described there's a lot of compulsion to just write things down to figure them out or to i mean really to figure them out i don't know if i go back and look at a lot of the things i do but uh, one of the things that probably drives you know i try to write it down paper and not just send messages to Olivia nonstop and drive her crazy. But when I read a book, you know, what did I think of this book? And you know, but I I don't know if I'm necessarily interested in publishing criticism, but it's it's a hobby, I guess you would say. You know, how did this work? And I and it informs the things I write.
2: Who's your favorite author?
1: Oh it depends on the day, but as far as ones I will turn to over and over again and kind of collect as by it is one okay um so possession yes possession but um what i find fascinating about her is how you can see research that she's done for one thing but maybe didn't use it shows up in other things there's almost three lines see from
0: okay her
2: things yeah okay um, so, I'm going to ask you too, Olivia, who's your favorite author?
0: <laughs> yeah, we'll ask you next as well. Mine, I think I have a lot of favorite authors, but probably Nabokov or Nabokov. I love his writing. He's my original favorite author, I think. And then, um, but I also recently am devouring all of Olga Tokarchuk's writing. Oh, so, she, I, haven't, I haven't read her. It makes me no, feel she's great.
1: brilliant. She's amazing. She
0: won the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago, and she's a Polish writer. Um, and yeah. she wrote flights, but the, you should start with "Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead,"
1: oh, which is has great. an
0: older lady. Lady, really? mean? I'm talking like that? Yes. L- older woman <laughs> protagonist. Yeah, it's good, and she's fierce. She's amazing. Okay. Yes. Well, that's
2: good. That's lovely. Um, I will look out for her. Uh, if you're if you're going to ask, I've, I've remembered the precedent that I couldn't remember before. It's Sylvia Townsend Warner and the book Lolly Willows. I'm sure you've heard of it. Um, and Lolly Willows was the sort of archetypal Victorian spinster lady in the family. And she just, you know, bugger you all. I'm off and goes off in search of freedom and does outrageous things and immunes um, with the devil. Uh, And and it's a great great story about a bid for freedom in in an elderly woman. Um, My favourite author, this is going to be really hard. First, I must say, and I think this is a big handicap with my novel, probably. I don't read much contemporary fiction. Well, I don't read much fiction. Actually, I don't read many novels, put it that way, um, at all. I'm a bit of a film fan. I watch quite a lot of films. And 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 so and I certainly don't read contemporary fiction. But neither of you really mentioned contemporary authors, which interests me. I, too, have loved Nabokov. A.S. Byatt had a sister called Margaret Drabble. And yeah. actually, when I left university, I was just soaked up Margaret Drabble because she was my age and she wrote about all the things I was dealing with at the time. But And I've read a lot of people. I mean, the ter- you know, you probably winced, you know. I think uh, Saul Bellow was an amazing writer. I love his use of prose. I like, I think it's how people use prose. I I love um, W.G. Sebald, all his writing. I think it's really the quality of the prose I go for, almost more than what the story is.
1: One thing that I like about reading um, an author who might have an entire whole back catalog is seeing how things change. I mean, if you read by its first book Shadow of the Sun which is about a young woman who is not even out of school and has an affair and is figuring herself out and it's one that she wrote when she had just finished finished school herself and was pregnant with her first child and navigating you know life and it's an incredibly immature novel and it's just really fascinating to compare that to the children's book which is also about a mother who's writing and dealing with families and all of those things but they're just such completely different books and to, to, to oh, see.
2: yeah you obviously are have you done a degree in literature or something
1: <laughs> I actually did my degree in history we we um we talking about this the other day uh, I had a really hard time with fellow literature students <laughs> and so I quit the literature program and went into the history program instead what, um, what sort of hard time I just Well, again, there was a lot of immaturity of thought um, and a lot of...
2: In other words, you sat there thinking, I don't belong. These are not my people. What am I doing here?
1: Absolutely. And thinking like...
2: To me, a really good reason. We have to find our people.
1: Yeah. And history was wonderful. I loved it. I love studying it. And I think, you know, one of the things I like about reading is reading with an eye, eye to what was going on at the time this book was written and how does that inform it and you know your comment about so i had never even heard of um lolly willows but all i could think was what if em forster's cousin charlotte had gone out and done what she wanted in a room with a view which has been a favorite of mine for yes decades
0: what if charlotte so. I think now we've given Megan like her next book idea <laughs> as if she needs more. No, I think and it's really so,
2: fun. Yeah. So you were at the same
0: university, but you did do English. No, I did um, Slavic studies. So I studied Russian and Polish and is Russian, Russian literature.
2: Yeah. Oh, my God. So that explains Nabokov. But also, yeah, I'd rather I'd rather read Something by Dostoevsky than almost any contemporary novel.
0: I love Dostoevsky. Yes. I'm waiting
2: for the two of you to put yours out there. Then am I?
0: Yes. <laughs> no, we are. Um, both of us have gone through pitching novels. Megan's novels first first chapters were um, long listed for a prize, so I think we're gradually getting closer. You know, um, and so we just keep going with it and keep working on it, basically. That's yeah. Good. yeah well thank you thank you so much for your time we really appreciate it and when you finish your your second book let us know yeah the reading list yeah
2: well i will i will if it ever see what it's bound to be i mean uh, the publication date is spring 24 that's a year okay Okay. a year away and i can tell you the title okay interpretations of love
0: love it yes and you're, a fr- you're a what state, do you want to talk about this or not want to talk about it?
2: Well, I will simply say also it's studied with con- with uh, quotes from Joseph Conrad. I should have put Conrad in as a favorite also. Yeah, that's he's a favorite of mine as well. Not just the way he writes, but the way he thinks. Yes. So that's all I'll say.
1: Yes. Okay. I have a pet theory that people who, for whom English is not their first language, but who write in English are... There's just something magical about the yeah. writing, and Conrad it is. is yes, yeah. But sadly,
2: it's not true of me, but no, <laughs> I, I just love him. I love and and the rhythm. You know, again, it's the rhythm of the prose. Anyway, thank you very, very, very much. Thank you very much, we really
1: appreciate it. And that's it for this week. You can find us online at marginallypodcast.com and on Instagram at marginallypodcast. Our email is podcast at marginallypodcast.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our newsletter.
0: The sign up form is on our website. And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating it and leaving a review in your podcast app and or sharing an episode with a friend. This will help us to grow our community thanks for listening and happy writing
1: marginally is produced by the two of us megan and olivia so excuse any amateur issues we're working on it the theme music is it's time by scottie Caricaska. show notes for every episode are available at marginallypodcast.com thanks for listening yeah i uh not very articulate right now but um